You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, I want to read our text here this, uh, this afternoon here from Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea. Would you stand with me as I read this in honor of God's word? And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, if you're not there already, I'd love for you to go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 3. And by God's grace, we are going to close out this series that we've been in called Letters to the Church. And uh, we've been looking at these seven churches that are contained in the book of Revelation that were around in the first century in uh, ancient uh, Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And these seven letters that Jesus wrote to these churches about what faithfulness is to look like in Christ's church in a day of compromise. And as we have done so in this letter, we've been taking this journey. This, this letter, this vision of Revelation was first given to the Apostle John who was imprisoned on the island of Patmos off the coast of Turkey. And that vision he recorded and then became this book of Revelation and was put on probably a scroll that was then given to a courier who would then deliver this one by one, going to one church at a time, reading the letter, and then going to the next church. And we began this journey in the city of Ephesus, uh, there on the southwestern coast of Turkey. And there at the church of Ephesus, we saw faithfulness in the area of love and what that looks like in a church. And then we moved north to the church that was in Smyrna and looked at faithfulness in the area of suffering. And then we moved all the way north to the church that was located in Pergamum and looked at faithfulness in the area of worship. And then we turned southeast and went down to the church that is in Thyatira and looked at faithfulness in the area of our work. And then we went to the church that is in Sardis and looked at faithfulness in the area of truth. And then last week, we looked at the church that is in Philadelphia and looked at faithfulness in the area of mission. 
And this week, we will conclude with the church that is in Laodicea and look at what faithfulness is in the area of dependency, dependency or sufficiency in Christ Jesus. Now, like we've done with each one of these churches, a little bit of background on the city gives some context to the church that finds itself in that city and the various issues that they were wrestling with in terms of faithfulness. And this is no exception. The the city of Laodicea is located in the rich Lycos River Valley that was a fascinating city in the first century. And uh, it's for that reason so much so that right now it's actually the largest archaeological excavation in all of Turkey. Uh, More work is being done on Laodicea than any of the other seven churches, including Ephesus. And originally what put this city on the map was that it was a throne city. It was given the status of being a throne city. There was a family um, uh, that that was by the name of Zeno, a man by the name of Zeno who came from here. And he was elevated by Rome to the kingship of Cilicia. And then three years later, got elevated to Pontus over the whole region. And his family ruled all over Turkey. And so this city was given the status of being a throne city. And as such, there's a tremendous amount of pride in the residents of that city for this place in the first century. At its peak, the city had about 120,000 residents living there. It was the largest of the three cities that are in that Lycos River Valley, Colossae being one of the other ones, and Hierapolis. Um, But this was the largest of the three. And it was situated like many of the other churches that we've looked at here on a major trade route of the day, which made this place... um, a, a, an incredible commercial hub, and in fact became a very wealthy and affluent city. They took great pride in their commerce and their ingenuity and a, their innovative industrialization, and um, they're on the cutting edge in many ways of uh, many advancements in their commerce, and especially took pride in being a self-made city off their own accomplishments. And you really kind of see this come to a head in 26 AD. Laodicea competes against 10 other cities for the privilege of getting to build the first temple to Emperor Tiberius. This is kind of like the Olympics, multiple cities competing, hoping that they'll get picked with the honor, and Smyrna wins. Laodicea doesn't. And just like with the Olympics, when you find out what's the reason They were told, Laodicea was told, and I quote, you've got insufficient resources. You don't have enough of the infrastructure. You don't have enough of the wealth. And this put a chip on the shoulder of the Laodiceans. So much so that several years later, in fact, 60 AD, a major earthquake hits Laodicea and levels the city. It's the same earthquake, by the way, that hit Sardis and took off half the slope of Sardis. And when this happened, it leveled the city. Rome reached out and offered uh, some finances to help rebuild the city. And Laodicea said no. You know what they said? They said, in fact, specifically, no, thank you. We've got sufficient resources on our own. We'll take care of it. We're not going to depend on anybody. We're going to do this ourselves. And so they put the gas pedal down 
And for the next several years, they worked hard, they innovated, they progressed, and they prospered in such a way that by the second half of the first century, Laodicea became world-renowned in four major commodities. Number one, they became world-renowned in their wealth. They became the leading banking center in all of Asia Minor. They exchanged their own money. They minted their own coins. Uh, They became incredibly wealthy. And then they became world-renowned in the uh, area of clothing and fashion. They were known for their very expensive black wool. And it became a great fashion and textile center known for their designer clothes, kind of like the garment district of New York City or even here in Dallas became this fashion center. In addition to that, thirdly, they became known for their school of medicine. And they innovated an eye salve there in Laodicea that came from a Phrygian stone that was crushed into this fine black powder known as calerium that was used to treat the eyes. In fact, they had a famous ophthalmologist who came from this school named uh, Demosthenes. And Demosthenes actually wrote a book on treating the eyes that was used all the way into the Middle Ages. And so this was an incredibly innovative city. There was a fourth area, though, and they became innovative in their water supply system. Now, the deal with Laodicea is they didn't have their own water supply. They had to build their own aqueducts to import water in. And they did so from two main sources. One of those was from the nearby Mount Cadmus. Mount Cadmus is the tallest mountain in the region, just outside of Colossae. And it's snow-capped about nine, 10 months out of the year. And so that snow melt becomes fresh, cold water that they built aqueducts for and imported all the way in that cold water from Mount Cadmus into Laodicea. In addition, they built another aqueduct system that ran to nearby Hierapolis to bring in their hot water. Hierapolis is known for its hot springs. In fact, when you look at the side of the mountain in Hierapolis, it looks like it's snow covered. That's actually calcium deposits called travertine that cascades the entire. If you ever go to Turkey and visit this place, it's just fascinating of what you're even looking at in this place. But it's all hot springs that are all coming up and they aqueduct the hot water all the way in to Laodicea. From these two sources here now, they innovatively perfected this practice in such a way that in the late 1800s, when they were excavating this site, they discovered that nearly every home in Laodicea had its own indoor plumbing, which was just unheard of in the first century. And so the problem was, is that by the time this water got to Laodicea, the cold water was no longer cold and the hot water was no longer hot. It was lukewarm. In addition, it was plagued with lime deposits. And so it became toxic to even drink. It would make you sick to the point of throwing up. And so that being said, this city, it definitely had its own share of struggles, but this was a city that was determined to pull up its bootstraps through sheer will and determination to find clever man-centered ways to innovate and improve where they didn't have to depend on anyone, especially Rome, to uh, accomplish their ambitious goals. And in many ways, this city is just like America in many ways. And so much like Dallas, even. This 
marked by an independent spirit, self-sufficient drivenness to work hard, be the best, depend on no one so that we can fulfill our own personal version of the American dream. And it sounds oh so noble and is totally fine when it comes to competitive marketplace goals and system of commercialism and free market enterprise. But here's the question. What happens when you're a church immersed in that culture? Now, Let's be honest, a church in this setting, if it's healthy, actually has a lot of resources that it can leverage and steward through the power of the Holy Spirit to advance the gospel and to continue kingdom work. can be very strategic, just like many of the cities. Even like here in Dallas, with all the resources around us, if a church is healthy, this can be a very strategic city as a hub to actually have supply resources that can extend on a macro level. But what if instead that church isn't as healthy as they think it is, the church begins to adopt the culture's self-sufficient spirit as their own. And they begin to take all their resources and they begin to turn them inward to the point that they're so consumed with their own affluence that they no longer find themselves in need of Jesus' sufficiency or the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what Jesus has called them to do. And in doing so, actually cancels out their witness to the very city that they're trying to reach. Welcome to the church of Laodicea. And what we're going to see here, starting in verse 14 and following, is Jesus' words to the self-sufficient church to the church who will not depend upon him for the very strength and sufficiency they need to carry out the work he's called them to. In verse 14, I want you to notice who Jesus is to this church. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, These are titles, by the way, that are stressing Jesus' faithfulness and his authority over his church. And there are three specific titles that are actually taken from Isaiah 65, from Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Messiah, who would come and serve as a faithful witness to God through his redemptive work in bringing about a new creation. He is the God of truth. He's the amen He is the one who is not only the sustainer of everything, he created it in the first place out of nothing. And in many ways, this imagery that's right out here in verse 14 sounds very familiar to what Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, which was right next door. When Paul said these words in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is the one who made everything out of nothing. If there is any being that has ever been self-sufficient, it is Jesus, not us. And he is the ruler over all things. And so this becomes a clear image 
not only of Jesus's faithfulness against the backdrop of this church's unfaithfulness, but this becomes a clear image of Christ's sovereign sufficiency against the backdrop of this church's deep insufficiency. And if you notice in verse 15 and following, unlike the church at Philadelphia that we looked at last week in which Jesus didn't have one negative thing to say to that church, Jesus doesn't have one positive thing to say to this church. It says in verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, this is a loaded statement, but I want to address something right up front. This, by the way, is one of the most misunderstood or misabused statements, pieces of scripture in the whole Bible. I remember hearing in my youth group, our youth pastor, using this text to try to motivate us. that Hey, you need to get hot for Jesus. We don't need to be tepid and lukewarm. You need to get hot for Jesus. You need to raise the temperature, man. You need to get out there. You need to rekindle those flames and get hot for him. But the problem is, is that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says, I wish you were either hot or cold. When was the last time you heard a youth pastor get up and go, hey man, you need to get cold for Jesus. You need to, get, you need to cool down a little bit. You need to lower the temperature, man. You're not gonna hear that. But what Jesus is doing here is he's telling this church, your efforts for me, your ministry for me, it's like your city's water supply. And hot water heals and cold water refreshes, but you are neither because you are operating apart from me. You are looking to your own self-sufficiency rather than dependency upon me And so your deeds are tainted. They're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but you're neither. And and they're tainted. Your deeds are powerless in representing me and bringing the people around you what they truly need in the gospel. And when you do these deeds, the way that you do them, it makes me want to spit you out of my mouth. Now that word spit in the ESV that I'm reading from just doesn't do it justice. The original language, it's the word emeo, which we get the term in our English vocabulary, an emetic. It's used in the medical profession. It's the idea of a substance that is used to help bring on an onset of violent, a violent explosion so that you can literally throw up something that's toxic. And, and I remember the visual picture I got of this early on when I was in college uh, I lived in a house with nine other dudes, um, which that's a whole story in of itself. But um, one of our roommates ended up becoming one of my groomsmen at my wedding. One of my good friends in college uh, was blind. And, uh, but he didn't want anybody to know he's blind. Like he wanted you to look at him and think that he could see perfectly. And so he would map out his steps. He knew exactly when to turn it before getting to the couch. And of course, um, we liked to jack with him quite a bit and rearrange the furniture and we'll had to repent of that later. But, um, but one day I was actually in the bathroom. I was getting ready for a shower, I believe it was. And he called out to me. He was in the kitchen and he just said, hey, I need, I need some bread. I'm out of bread. I'm trying to make a sandwich. I said, hey, you can have some of mine. Just go into my, go into the pantry. We had nine shelves. Just reach up and, on my shelf and grab my bread. It's yours. 
And so he does that. And then a few minutes later, all I heard was, it's just the worst throw up noise I've ever heard. And then I run out there and I'm going, what's going on? And it, what, I mean, the, the bread was not even green anymore. It was beyond green. It had a buzz cut on the top. It was, he had reached on the wrong shelf. And I think it was the manna left over from Israel in the wilderness from several thousand years ago. I have no idea how that was in there, but he grabbed that and made it. And in that moment, he experienced an emeo, a violent onrush of symptoms that had to find its way out. And Jesus says, this is how I feel towards you. This is what your deeds are like. Like your city's water source, they've become contaminated. To when I actually put it in my mouth, it makes me want to vomit. That's the strong language. And you go, what exactly did this church do that would make Jesus use such harsh words? And we begin to get some hints here in verse 17. The church says, for you say, Jesus, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. This was the church's perception of themselves. Like no doubt, this would have been hard for them to hear because they thought the opposite, but this was the church's perception of themselves. They're saying to Jesus, essentially the same thing that Laodicea said to Rome after the earthquake. I don't need you. I've got everything I need, Jesus. Thank you for the offer to help but I've got it from here. We're actually good. We're really quite wealthy and we don't need nothing. We're 100% self-sufficient when it comes to our witness and our influence and our ministry. Jesus says, your perception of yourself couldn't be further from the truth. When he says at the end of verse 17, in reality, you don't realize that you're actually wretched and pitiable and poor and blind, and naked. This, no doubt, again, would have stung to a church that saw themselves so much differently. But do you see the deep irony here in Jesus' statement? In a place that was world-renowned for making its own material wealth, Jesus says to the church, you're actually spiritually poor. In a place that was world-renowned For its ability to heal physical eyes, Jesus says to his church that you are spiritually blind. To a place that is world-renowned for its ability to make the finest of clothes, Jesus says to his church, you are spiritually naked. Now just to be clear, Jesus is not critiquing their wealth or their medicine or their clothing or their innovations thereof, just their use of it. They are putting their trust and their sufficiency in the commodities of man, not in their savior. They are worshiping their comfort rather than Christ. Now, before we jump all over them for being prideful in their affluence, let's just remember for just a moment that as Americans, even the poorest of us in this room is how the rest of the world looks at us like this. We are living in a day with so much access to resources and comfort and wealth that is unparalleled anywhere else in the world. 
or in any other point in human history. In Dallas, Texas, this is the wealthiest generation that has ever lived on planet Earth. And even the poorest among us are wealthier than other parts of the world can even fathom about. And so it's not those things that are wicked. And I know this because I am tempted myself on any given day to run to these lesser saviors for their power and their sufficiency. And it's not those things that are the problem. It's my heart that is the issue that wants to steward them and hoard them for myself rather than stewarding them for God's kingdom. And so in love, Jesus counsels his church in verse 18. By the way, if you're looking for a great counseling text, there's no better counselor than Jesus Christ. Listen to his counsel for the one who is battling self-sufficiency and a lack of dependency. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Does that sound remotely familiar? Jesus nails three of their major commodities right there and applies them spiritually to the issues of this church and says, hey, first of all, instead of putting your sufficiency in your material wealth as the banking center of Asia, you need a spiritual wealth, eternal riches that can only come through me. When the gold that you put your stock into becomes your delight in me, even when it's refined painfully through fire, you're inheriting eternal riches that far transcend any material wealth that you could ever invest in. And instead of putting your sufficiency in your material clothing, your fine black wool that is temporary, you need the spiritual clothing of my righteousness that can make you as white as snow and cleanse you from within. And instead of putting your sufficiency in the medicine of man that only heals the physical eyes, put your sufficiency in the spiritual salve of Christ that removes spiritual blindness so that you can see that which is eternal and that which is worth living for with clear eyes. You think your need is external, so you seek to buy from what is external but your need is deep within that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. Buy from me, Jesus says. Now, if you wanna see what is at the root of this church's issue, which is at the root of Jesus's counsel, jump down to verse 20. When he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, verse 15 is one of the most abused pieces of scripture in all the Bible. This one is a close runner-up right here because I've heard this one go a number of ways too. Typically, it goes like this from preachers who preach this text, that Jesus is sitting down with a non-believer who's far from him and saying, hey, behold, I'm standing at the door of your heart. If you'll just open the door of your heart to me and receive me by faith, I'll come in and save you. And that's true. That's just not true here. 
Because notice Jesus isn't sitting with a non-believer in this passage. He's talking to his own blood-bought church, his sons and daughters. And he's knocking at the door of the church because the church has locked him out. They say they don't need him. And so in this moment, as Jesus knocks, he's asking for an invitation to intimacy and communion and dependency upon him. He is is showing up at their church gathering and essentially they've dead bolted the door so he can't get in. He's like, hey, let me in. You need me to clothe you in my righteousness. And the church goes, no, 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 we're we're good. We've, We've got our own clothes, thank you. He's going, hey, open the door, let me in. You need the heavenly treasures, the eternal treasures of infinite joy that I have to offer you in my presence. And like, no, 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 we're, we're good, Jesus. We, we've got our own worldly wealth. We're content. And Jesus is like, hey, you, you need to let me in. You need my power that is given through my conquering resurrection, through the giving of the Holy Spirit, apart from which you can do nothing in this church is saying, no, we're good. We're too busy for what you have to offer us. We've got this long list of to-dos that we got to knock out tonight. We'll get back to you. Jesus said, hey, let me in. You need the all-satisfying intimacy of my presence to sustain you. To which the church simply says, nah, Jesus, we're good. We've got activities and programs for days. This thing's on autopilot. And if we got a need, we'll just hire for it. I say, Jesus, we don't need you. We are in need of nothing. And in doing so, they treat Jesus like a solicitor at your door. When you just look through the ring doorbell to see who it is, go, I'm answering that. And you send them packing. And I don't know about you, but for me, this is one of the most tragic verses in the entire Bible. And that is because I know this to be all too well in my own life. I have access to the greatest power that has ever been given to a resurrected Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. I've been given access to the greatest presence that can satisfy my loneliness and sustain me from the depths of his grace like nothing else can And still daily, I choose to exchange that for my own sufficiency, my own work of my hands, my own resources that I think I can do better than he can. And I got to believe that if you're anything like me on that and you're reading this text, you go, man, what do I do? What do we do when this happens? How do we battle against the tendency of settling for a nominal, tepid, lukewarm relationship with Jesus Christ, which honestly is really no relationship at all. Where we are completely self-sufficient and non-dependent upon him. Look back at verse 19. Jesus gives us three important things that we need to know. But first, notice the posture by which he begins. He says, those whom I love. Just pause right there for a moment. You need to be reminded of Christ's great love for you. I don't care how far 
you have wandered from the Lord. I don't care how much you have rebelled. I don't care how much you've rejected the sufficiency of Christ in exchange for your own effort and strength. Your God loves you. And he has not stopped pursuing you. And I believe that he's speaking to you through the Holy Spirit right now, communicating to your heart just how much he cares about you. And it's out of that posture that he gives this threefold prescription of how we can turn from this. When he says, first of all, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. The first thing that we need to do is we need to receive the Lord's discipline. The author of Hebrews essentially says the same thing in Hebrews 12. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. Y'all, this is a loving father pursuing his wayward child and who's begun to wander off into their own sufficiency and the things of this world and this loving father who confronts them in the midst of their wandering and rebellion in an attempt to pull them back into where the true gold is really found. And when that happens, the temptation for us is to feel like that is cruel, that is hard, but the truth is, when it's coming from a heart of love, Proverbs 27 tells us the, the, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. It's the kisses of the enemy that you want to watch out for. People who simply tell you what you want to hear are no friends at all. And Jesus loves you too much to let you wander for too long and wants to come confront that rebellion and attempt to bring you back into relationship with him and intimacy with him. And so don't despise his correction if the spirit is speaking to you in this moment. Receive it from the heart of the father. And then secondly, towards the end of that verse, he says, repent. Which is simply, and we've talked about this throughout these Letters, which is a change in mind that brings about a change in heart that brings about a change in path. It's here is the path of the Lord that we know leads to flourishing and blessing. And we have chosen to deviate from that path and get on our own path thinking this is the wise way to go. Repentance is actually changing direction and getting back on the path that is the Lord's. And I think repentance in this context is actually the third thing that he mentions there, being zealous. Being zealous, not settling anymore for that tepid, lukewarm, nominal relationship with Jesus, but instead yielding the zeal that you've carried for these lesser things and placing that zeal where it rightly belongs upon Christ and his kingdom as your all-satisfying joy and sufficient power. You do that, and Jesus promises not only intimacy and communion with him in this life right now, as verse 20 tells us, but also the security of that intimacy that is still to come when this life is over and we're in the presence of Christ. Verse 21 communicates this. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
Jesus knew what it was like to give up the fleeting treasures of this earth so that he could enjoy the eternal treasures with the Father in the life to come. Jesus, who gave up the world's thrones that were offered to him while he was on this earth, now sits at the greatest, most sovereign throne that has ever been established with God the Father. And he says the same is true for us. And to the Laodiceans, he's essentially asking, are you simply content with the throne of Zeno there in Laodicea when I'm offering you the throne of mine to rule and to reign with me, to give up what you must give up in this life, but to gain what has been already secured by my blood for you in the life to come. It's an invitation to that. And it's an invitation for us that we would not settle for a nominal faith, but spend our days in humble dependency upon Jesus all the way to the end until he comes. So that being said, as we look at this letter, church, let me just ask you again, as we've been doing with each one of these, some introspective questions that I've been asking of myself this week that I think we would do well to ask. And I think one of the questions would have to be right out of the gate, how would you assess your spiritual temperature for Jesus right now? How would you assess your zeal for Jesus Christ, for his word, for his kingdom right now? How would your roommates or friends or even spouse assess your your temperature with the Lord right now? Is there a sense of urgency in your spiritual life right now where Jesus Christ is the thing that you need the most? He's the most important. And if not, then maybe there's a check engine light on here that there is a greater sufficiency and a greater dependency that your heart is running towards, which actually is lesser. That you might turn back unto him. If our relationship with Jesus and abiding in his word and prayerful dependence and seeking the power and the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit to accomplish. Jesus said in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I guess the question is, do we believe that? Do we really believe that if Jesus isn't sown in as the, as the vine of our life, then there's nothing that we can actually accomplish in our own strength, in our own power for any eternal good? I think if we really believed that, it would change our prayer life. It would lead us on our knees to cry out to the despot God of the universe whom nobody can contend with, who created all things, who is all sufficient, who just say the word and he can grant it. And we would run to him in that kind of dependency to say, if not for you, oh God, there is nothing. I'm host. We're host as a church. That we might run to him for that all satisfying sufficiency. It's a heavenly father who longs to give it. If it's not where it should be, then maybe what would serve us well, maybe we go back to the very first exercise we did, the very first church in this series, the church at Ephesus, and we ask ourselves, but in terms of dependency, what are the things that you do that when you do them are actually stealing your dependency from the Lord? And identify those things and break up with them in your heart and repent from them and turn back unto the Lord. And conversely, what are those things that when we do them actually stir our dependency more upon the Lord that lead us to his throne room to cry out to him 
and utter dependence. And let's engage in those things. Rest assured, this is not just a, an individual struggle. This is a corporate struggle, especially in the Western church where we have the privilege of so many resources, but they end up choking us out. And I've shared this many times before. Maybe one of the most convicting statements was the South Korean pastor who traveled for the very first time over the United States and did a tour of the American church, visited a couple different cities, a couple different churches. And at the end of the trip, the little committee that he's with there asked him, so what's your takeaway from the American church? And his response, so convicting, said, I am utterly blown away by how much the American church can accomplish apart from the Holy Spirit. It's like Paul said to Timothy, you have the appearance of godliness, the form of godliness, but it is devoid of any power. It's just going on autopilot, living off yesterday's meals. Oh, that we would live differently in our day. What do we do with not just this message? What do we do with this series? Why do we even do this series to begin with? To be honest with you, my burden for wanting to teach these letters here is not just for the day we're in, though certainly it applies, but I think specifically for the day that's coming for us here in the West. That whatever compromise may arise around us in the culture and in the churches around us, that we could be a church who could learn from the lessons of Jesus and his counsel in these letters, that we would stand firm on God's word and we would not bow the knee to compromise in our day, that we would be faithful to Jesus all the way to the end. But understand, we will not drift into faithfulness. It will require discipline of the heart and of the mind and of the hands. In the same way that we discipline our bodies in a gym, we're going to have to discipline the affections of our heart and the intellect of our mind according to God's word to go where we know the gold is. We just know that we're prone to wander and so we want to train our hearts and our lives to pursue faithfulness in Jesus Christ in his power because we know that's where life is given. As we close out this series I want to draw our attention to the last verse that is in this text, verse 22, which happens to be the exact last verse of all seven letters. Seven times Jesus says these words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And why does he say that at the end? When Jewish nomenclature, the idea of hearing is always the same as obeying. There's not a Western binary distinction where there was the thought that you could collect information in your head and then do nothing with it. There's no idea in Jewish nomenclature when a command is given that it can go in one ear and out the other. To hear is to obey. And the actual Jewish phrase in Hebrew for to hear is one word, Shema. And it happens to be taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the most significant text in all of the Hebrew Bible for a Jew. In fact, it's recited even by Orthodox Jews, even to this day, in which says this Hear, O Israel. Shema, O Israel. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
all your strength and all your mind. This is the most important commandment. Jesus would quote that in Matthew 22 as the greatest commandment in the whole Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love him with everything that you are. And Jews, even to this day, they pray that prayer, the Shema, every day, reminding them that to hear is to obey. And now Jesus quotes it again. Hear. Even James comments on this. In James 1, let's not just be hearers of the word, but let's be doers. Let's hold to the Shema. And so Jesus quotes it right here and he says, let the Holy Spirit not just convict the church in these matters, but let the Holy Spirit press us towards heart repentant obedience that we would take this instruction and we would put it into practice. So how are we doing Northway Church? How are we doing in these areas? Jesus says that in a day where compromise is all around us, that we would be a church that is marked by faithfulness and our love for Christ, our suffering for Christ, our worship of Christ, our work for Christ, our truth in Christ, our mission for Christ, and all in all, our dependency in Christ. May it be so in our day all the way to the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, as convicting as it is, Lord, we need to hear it. We need to receive your counsel. Because God, I know from my own heart on any given day, I am prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And Lord, I don't want to do that. You've bought me the price of your own son with his blood shed on the cross, given me new life. Lord, I want to yield myself to you. And I pray for Northway Church that we as a corporate body would yield ourselves to you, that we wouldn't just play church, that we would truly hear what the Spirit is saying and we would give our lives in full surrender because that's where our greatest joy is found. So, oh Lord, awaken us. Bring us out of our slumber. Give us eyes to see so that we might walk in a posture of dependence, trusting in the sufficiency that is fully in Christ to live this life, a life marked by godliness that would bring you the most glory, would bring us the most good, and would compel us to go out these doors and share the hope of Christ with a world that so desperately needs it. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.